morning, everyone. This morning, um, I want to start us with a, a, some lyrics from a hymn that you're probably singing, if not in, in our church or someplace at home. Maybe it's one of your favorite Christmas hymns. Uh, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to thy perfect light. You can almost hear the melody in your head. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, never ceasing over us all to reign. O star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us to Thy perfect light. What a, a great Christmas hymn, isn't it? I mean, this is this is one of the, the the favorites out there. If you buy a nativity scene, there's a good chance it's going to come complete with three kings in the set. Uh, one of my uh, hands-down favorite Rodiver Christmas decorations is our nativity scene. We got it as a gift about 15 years ago. Let me show you a picture of it. It's great. I, I love it, you know. Um, uh, it's cute little figurines and all that. And that little Jesus there, he, you can see him sitting in the, in the yellow manger, he pops out. And so um, oftentimes when we had this set up, Jesus would be missing. And so Lori and I would walk around and say, what, what, happened, what happened to the Jesus? We'd ask Asher, who was about three years old, and Asa, maybe, maybe Asa was just born. And Asher, where's Jesus? Oh, I put him in timeout. Yeah, so and maybe he was projecting, but he was always taking baby Jesus out of there and hiding him around the house. We always put him back, but that's, that's my favorite knit, uh, Christmas decoration. Um, although there, there is a problem with that, uh, apart from the fact that all the figurines, they all look like they're Scandinavians, right? Not Middle Eastern people. But, but aside from that, there is a problem with this nativity set. It's a problem with almost all nativity sets, and, and that's this. There aren't three kings in Matthew's narrative, in Matthew chapter 2, Right? I mean, you know that, right? There are no kings mentioned in Matthew chapter 2 uh, uh, at all. And then, and then you say, well, well yeah, there's, there's, there's got to be three kings. Number one, there's that song we sing every year. And then there's three gifts. Of course, that's, that's faulty reasoning. I'm going to give my wife three gifts for Christmas. That doesn't mean there's three of me, right? And you say, but, but we know their names, right? Uh, historically, wasn't it Gasper, uh, Melchior, and Balthazar? Well, those are the names. Well, no, those were made up by a monk in the 6th century. It was part of the story of the, the three kings of Orient. Or the three wise men, as they've also been called, which is a really tame uh, translation of what the text actually says. Now, if you have a, a New American Standard Bible or an NIV, the 2011 edition, they actually translate the word correctly. It's translated magi. And you can already imagine what English word we get from the word magi, and that is magicians, sorcerers. There's a good chance that there could have been three. There probably was more than three. We actually don't know. They weren't even kings. And there's a good chance there were many, many more showing up at this time. In fact, it's likely in Matthew chapter 2, what we just heard read, it was probably a large caravan of magi, uh, attendants and their guards. Uh, and you think about it, think about this for a second. If you had um, three chubby Scandinavian men with bags of essential oils, that's not going to scare the mighty King Herod, right? Let alone the entire city of Jerusalem. And get this, while, while, I'm, while I'm blowing up the things you thought you knew about Christmas, um, they weren't even at the birth of Jesus, right? Did you, know, you know that, right? 
They were not at the birth of Jesus. Matthew says when they got to the house, in Luke's narrative in Luke chapter 2, it's very clear that the shepherds showed up at the manger. Luke is very careful to always call Jesus the baby while Matthew calls Jesus the child. And in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16, it's, it's, it, you can infer from that very strongly that Jesus could have been as old as two years of age by this time. What's going on, right? <laughs> Next, I'm going to tell you that Santa Claus doesn't exist. That's another sermon for some other time. Uh, in our Advent series, Through the Eyes of Faith, we have been looking at the Advent, the birth of Jesus, primarily through Jewish eyes, with the exception of this morning. This morning, it is not obviously the devout Joseph. It's not even the theologically-minded Mary. We're not even thinking about the humble shepherds that Jordan's going to unpack next week. But we are considering Advent through the mysterious and mystical eyes of these magi from the East, Gentiles, scholars from Babylon, sorcerers, astrologers. Now, I hope if you've been with us this last year in our study of Mark's gospel, you have learned to ask the really important question, especially when you're reading the gospels, why did the author write this? And you know from Matthew, or excuse me, John chapter 21, John says that Jesus had done so much that, that if we had recorded everything about the life of Jesus, the world couldn't contain the amount of books that would be produced. And so everything that the gospel writers included in the gospels are there for a reason. There's reasons why they chose certain miracles. There's reason why they highlighted certain conversations. There's reasons why these paragraphs, these, these, these excerpts are there for a purpose. It's not just because that's the way the story flowed. They were creating the story. So we have to ask, why did Matthew include the Babylonian Magi's visit to Jesus when Luke who records Jesus' birth and his early narratives, doesn't say anything at all about them. Mark doesn't cover it, neither does John. Why does Matthew put it in his gospel? You see, we just, we just assume that's the story. I mean, this is the how Christmas, the how Advent goes. But why? The answer to that question is in part seen in the contrast between Herod and the Jerusalem religious leaders in our text, as well as in the ever-increasing fulfillment of God's plan to save all of humanity, including even the most unlikely of people, like magi, sorcerers from the East. So this morning in our time together, we're going to look at two sets of people. We're going to look at the magi, and we're going to look at the kings, and you say, well, what, what, what do you mean kings? What, what kings are we talking about? Well, there is the corrupt king Herod, and then there's the boy king Jesus. So the magi and the kings. And we want to learn two things about them. We want to know who they are and why they came. Because it's very important to understand the gospel narrative. So we're going to look at the magi and the kings, who they are and why they came. Let's look at the magi first. Uh, in earlier times, Magoi uh, is, is, is translated as Magi. They, they were, as I said, referred to as the wise men, but in the NAS and the NIV, they're rightly translated the Magi. They always and almost exclusively refer referred to priests who divine the mysteries, particularly from Persia and Babylon. Now, in the Septuagint, and the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay, so that would have been the Old Testament that most of the people in Palestine in the first century would have been reading. 
in synagogue. The Torah would have been in, in, in obviously in Hebrew. But the, the languages they spoke, a lot of it was Arabic. But Greek was very common. It was the Greco-Roman world. And so a lot of people would have been familiar with the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. And in the Septuagint, Mag Magi is consistently and always used in the book of Daniel, referring to a certain class of people. Daniel chapter 1, verse 20. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them, Daniel and his friends, ten times better than all the magi and enchanters that were in his kingdom. In the next chapter, then the king commanded that the magi, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. A few verses later, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magi, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. So you see that Chaldean, sorcerer, astrologer, magi, they're being used in some cases uh, synonymously, sometimes they're separated out. But the point being that every time we see magi showing up in the book of Daniel and in the scriptures, particularly Daniel in the Old Testament, the magi were what we would consider in our, in our common vernacular, they were like the cabinet of the president. They were the, the cabinet of the emperor. They were the counselors, the advisors to the kings of old. When the emperors needed answers, they would tap the magi. You see, the magi were the intellectuals of their day. They were the academics. They were the scientists, the scholars. They were the intelligentsia of the time. Now, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament records for us his rise to prominence in Babylon during the 6th century B.C. It's Daniel's influence, it's his influence in Babylon that most likely is the reason that the Magi show up in our Gospels here in Matthew's account. Let me connect the dots for you. We know that Daniel rose, became one of the most prominent, trusted, and valued advisors in all of Babylon. The book of Daniel tells us about this. Daniel would have been counted among the Magi. Now, maybe not in name. He may not have taken the name because of the associations with that, but certainly in function, Daniel was a Magi, if not probably the main Magi in Babylon in the 6th century B.C., as a result of Daniel's influence and the increasing population of Jewish, Jewish communities, and remember, if you were here during the summer and we went through the, our series on the minor prophets, you learned that the Babylonians came, destroyed Jerusalem, and exiled all the population to Babylon. And so during the 6th century B.C., because of Daniel's influence and this increasing Jewish presence, it is possible, very possible, if not guaranteed, that people's familiarity with the Old Testament would have been commonplace, if not amongst every Babylonian, certainly amongst the Magi, and certainly amongst the intelligentsia, certainly amongst the counselors to the emperor. They would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. So it's likely, because of their involvement in astrology, that Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24, 17 would have had much significance to the Magi. This is what it says. I see him, speaking of the, the soon coming Redeemer, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of his hand. Now we know 
historically from the documents that we've discovered in what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls, discovered in Qumran in the late 1940s, that the early Jewish community clearly saw Numbers 24-17 as a clear sign of the Messiah, that the Redeemer was to come. So we know that this is what the Jews believed at the time, so we know with the Jewish influence in Babylon that the Magi probably interpreted uh, Numbers 24-17 in that same vein. Therefore, an appearance of any unusual star over the land of Palestine would have caused great interest in the Magi of Babylon at the time. Now, since the early days of the Caesars of Rome, the, 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 the appearance of stars, supernovas, uh, cosmic events was often associated with either the birth or the death of the great Caesars, particularly, and I couldn't figure out if it was actually Julius Caesar or Caesar Augustus that started it, but at one of their deaths, one of the most amazing astronomical flukes had taken place. A, a supernova happened over his funeral pyre. And since then, they associated, they took that as Caesar going back to take his place amongst the gods. In part, this is partly why we believe people who are kind of the, the above there that have the influence, we, we associate them with being stars. It comes from back then, that these are people who are a special class, somehow in ancient culture, deified. And so we have this kind of mythology around stars and mythical significance around individuals. Now let me make a, a real quick comment here because it's easy to read because it's Advent time, we're so familiar with these stories, and, and a lot of it's domesticated, and, and a lot of it just seems so foolish to the modern mind that we can discount it very easily. Now, I want to be very careful here. I don't believe in astrology per se, but let me say this. If you were a pre-modern living in ancient Babylonia or Palestine, you actually would be completely flabbergasted that people didn't believe in astrology. Because in ancient times, when someone looked onto the constellations and the stars at night, the cosmos was one of the most ordered and settled things that there were. There was mechanical precision to the stars. I mean, we literally set our watches to them. We could find our way and navigate through the stars. The stars were seen as one of the most precise ordered elements of creation. And so when there was an anomaly, a falling star, a meteorite, a comet, a nova, supernova, whatever it might be, planets aligning unusually, it was taken as a distinct sign from the gods that things in the world of men would change. So it made complete sense to them that when there was something odd in the stars, it meant something for us. You see, very few, if any of you, grow up believing in astrology, but there was reasons why people back then held on to it, and because it seemed like science to them. Not science to us, but it made a lot of sense to them. Now, in order to make this 800-mile journey from Babylon to Jerusalem, it was a, quite a, an ordeal. It was often through hostile terrain. A large caravan would have been necessary to keep the supplies, the goods, the attendants, not to mention the guards to protect the magi and the attendants along the route. In chapter, uh, Ezra chapter 7, verse 9, it records for us that the journey would take roughly four months when Nehemiah and Ezra had made the journey themselves years later. So friends, Matthew 2, what we're reading in Matthew 2, it's not like a bunch of friends showing up for a baby shower with a few gifts. What we have happening in Matthew 2 is really a delegation of scholars, of attendants, 
and soldiers, Babylonian warriors, to guard them all and their goods on the journey, showing up in the city of Jerusalem, seeking the king of the Jews. If you're Herod, that's going to make you nervous. You're not going to be afraid of a three guys walking into town with a couple of presents. N- needless to say, the whole city's not going to care about that. But you do care when a caravan comes marching into town with magi, Babylonian soldiers and their attendants, with wagons of goods asking for the king of the Jews. That gets your attention. Now, we've talked a little bit about the magi. Let's talk about maybe something, what brought them here, the thing that we're always so fascinated with in Matthew's account, and that is this star. Now, what we have is a cuneiform, cuneiform inscription from an observatory in Sippor of ancient Babylon that inscribes for us and records for us an amazing, what we would say astronomical anomaly, they would call it an astrological anomaly. Um, in about 7 BC, you had the planet Jupiter and the planet Saturn aligning themselves over the constellation of Pisces, okay? This was happening, this happened three times in one year. By our calendar, that would have been May 29th, October 3rd, and December 4th. Now, in Chaldean and Babylonian astrology, not all, all astrology is the same. So what you have people believing in Northern Europe is different than what you have in the Middle East. So we're talking about Chaldean astrology. Jupiter was associated with the primary deity. And, and that's pretty true in a lot of those, like Roman, in Roman mythology, Jupiter was the largest planet. It's the only Jovian-class planet we have. So Jupiter oftentimes is seen as the primary deity. Saturn was associated with the Hebrews. Pisces in the constellation map was, was basically a cosmic representation of Palestine. In 7 BC, you had Jupiter, the primary deity, aligning with the people of the Hebrews, Saturn, in the constellation of Pisces, which was Palestine. So the primary deity aligning themselves with the Hebrews right over Palestine. Three times this happened in that one year. Now again, I'm not saying I believe in astrology. And I'm not saying that these, in fact, that's how you should interpret those signs. I'm merely saying how they would have understand their historical situations. And how God can use our historical situations to make a, bring about his purposes. Now... Astronomers David Hughes of the Royal Astronomical Society in England, John Mosley from the Griffith Observatory here in Los Angeles, and Mark Kidger of the European Space Agency, three astronomers, they've written some papers. You can see Dr. Kidger's uh, book on Princeton Press right there, The Star of Bethlehem. They've released academic papers, they've had conferences on this, and they've talked about this. They're not coming from a Christian perspective, they just find this a very astronomically interesting phenomenon. Their best stab at this is that this constellation, this alignment of planets that happened in 7 BC, correlated perfectly with about 18 months after the fact, we have recorded in China and Korea, astrologers, in about late 5 BC, a massive supernova over Palestine. So the way these astronomers put the story together is that in 7 BC, what these Chaldeans see is that the primary God aligns himself with the people of the, the Hebrews over Palestine, and less than two years later, a supernova explodes over that area. What they conclude is that the astrologers believe that to be the star in Numbers 24, 17, so they know what's going on. 
They know the location, they know who, and when they see the supernova, they know now's the time to go. Now, when I was studying and researching all of this this past couple of weeks, I found this, I was just like, wow, this is just absolutely amazing. And then as I was talking to my wife over, talking about the sermon with her, we came to the conclusion that I need to make a, a comment here. Because while this is amazing that we actually have uh, cuneiform inscriptions talking about these things, these extra biblical evidences pointing to these things, while we have astronomers saying, yeah, this in fact did happen at this time period, these things line up, that's not the reason I believe Matthew chapter 2. In other words, just because I can understand, just because you can understand the Christian faith, doesn't then all of a sudden mean that the Christian faith is right. Because there's so much in science that cannot explain this world, right? I, I don't, in other words, what I'm trying to say is I don't want us to have an uh, irrational faith, but I don't want to think that, us to think that in order for Christianity to be right, we have to rationally be able to explain it. Right? We don't want to make that mistake. We don't want to make the mistake of not looking for evidence, but we don't want to make the mistake of saying, unless we have evidence, we don't believe. Because, friends, if God wanted to simply drop an angel out of heaven and, and point to Bethlehem, that could have been what it was too, and I'd be happy with that. Does that make sense? Because we, at the same time, have to be the kinds of people that are being called out of the world that say, look, the word of God is the word of God, and we believe it because it's a revelation from him. We may not be able to prove every facet of it, but that's not why we believe it. We believe it because our lives have been transformed, and we believe in the character of God to be trustworthy. And so the things I can't make complete sense of, I take it by faith. I'm going to trust him on that. After all, friends, if you can believe the first ten words of the Bible, are you really going to struggle with anything else? I mean, think about it, right? Oh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. I believe that. But yeah, Jonah couldn't get swallowed by a whale, and there couldn't be a star over Bethlehem. I can't believe that. Well, that's crazy. See, and that's the reality is that there may be enough time in the pre-modern era, maybe we believed in superstition and things that were completely illogical. But now in our culture, we're making the same mistake but on the other foot. And that is, well, unless we can prove it rationally, then I'm not going to believe it. Friends, there's a lot of things we can't prove rationally that we base our lives on. Loving people sacrificially through difficulty. That's irrational from a survivalistic instinct, but that is still right right? There's a lot of things we cannot prove about our world, but still makes sense. And what I'm saying is that don't feel like, okay, now that you've explained how it astronomically can be possible, I now will believe, because you never will. True belief, the kind of belief that transforms your life and turns the furniture of the universe around for you is not something that you can lay out on a table and make a large logical argumentation and say, okay, it makes sense, I will now believe. Because that's not how the heart works. We have to give an allegiance to things and sometimes we don't understand them. I'm just merely trying to present, this is what God's word says and we actually have some analog in history and astronomy, but that's not why we believe it. We believe it because God was going to make it happen. And the fact that it happened either completely naturalistically, supernova and planets aligning, or an angel pointing the way, or a combination of the two, it happened. And we can look to the history and see how God arranged it as well. So the question is, why did the Magi come? Well, yes, they saw the star. They saw the star. They, they, they connected the dots. But they also came because during this time period, there was a sense that a seismic shift was taking place in the world of men at the time. Now, now we don't look at the Babylonians. Now we look over to the Romans to see how they were thinking about this time period. And the Roman historian Suetonius, 
He wrote this in his book, The Life of Vespasian, one of the Caesars. Throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old and persistent belief. Destiny had decreed that at the time, men coming forth from Judea would seize power and rule the world. Kind of an interesting way to frame it. That's very Roman to think of it that way, but it's very interesting that Suetonius recorded. This is what people believed. Josephus, who wrote the Jewish Antiquities and the Jewish War, he records similar sentiments. So did another Roman historian, Tacitus. He writes this in his book, The Histories. There was a firm persuasion that at this very time, the East was to grow powerful and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire universal empire. So the Magi came because, yes, they knew the, the, the Jewish scriptures. They saw the star. They had read things and believed this was actually what was going on. But they also came because persistent in that time, there was a sense of a seismic shift taking place, and it had something to do with Judea. We don't have just Jews saying this. Tacitus, uh, uh, um, blanking on the first, uh, Suetonius, they're not Jews. They're Romans. And, and, and Jude, uh, Judea was like some backwater place. That's like saying Barstow would become the dominant city of the United States. No offense if you're from Barstow, but you know what I mean. But yet they all believed with certainty something would happen in this backwater village in Palestine. And so the Magi, by the way, keep in mind, the Magi, as I said, they were the scientists, they were the scholars, the intelligentsia of the age. They were seeking wisdom. They wanted to understand life. They wanted to reason, understand why we exist. And they were looking everywhere and anywhere for those answers. And so they came because they thought maybe there's answers in Judea. So that's the Magi, who they were, why they came. Let's talk about the kings. In verse 1 of, of Matthew 2, we meet Herod. Herod the king, this is Herod the Great. Don't confuse him with Herod Antipas or Herod Agrippa, who we read about later in the Gospels and later in the book of Acts. Herod was a family dynasty, so it's more like a title than someone's actual name. So this is Herod the Great. By the way, Herod here was named by Rome a few years earlier than our narrative, King of the Jews. He was basically to be Rome's emperor, or excuse me, Rome's representative to rule over Palestine on behalf of the empire. And so they gave him this, this uh, honorific title, the king over the Jews, the king of the Jews. Now you already know why in verse 3 it records that Herod was troubled when these magi showed up seeking the king of the Jews because, wait a minute, I- I'm the guy you're looking for. I-, I am the king of the Jews. But that wasn't the fact. Now, Herod, if you know anything about this guy, Tristan and I were talking about Herod. I mean, he was a nutcase. He murdered his family, murdered his wives, murdered his... If you got near him, he murdered you. He was insane and paranoid and always believed that his power would be usurped by, by usurpers from the east. The Parthenians, he had just battled with them. And so he, all along Israel's eastern flank, you can go there to this day, you see Herod's fortresses and fortifications. So I have a couple of pictures. That's Masada. That's an that's a, uh, artist rendering up in the upper left corner because those uh, columns and all that don't exist. So somebody kind of put them back there. That's Masada, probably the most famous. Um, below is Machaerus, where John the Baptist was beheaded, and then above that is Herodium. Of course, it's totally been raised. It used to be a huge fortress, and a few more I didn't put up, but the point is, Herod was so paranoid about losing his throne from people, by, by invaders from the east that he entirely put on the eastern flank all these fortresses. 
So you can imagine when these magis, when these Babylonian warriors show up from the east seeking the king of the Jews, his paranoia went into overdrive. But it doesn't explain why Jerusalem was troubled as well. Remember you saw that? Verse 4, all of Jerusalem was in trouble, felt troubled, fearful. Did you notice when Herod called the chief priests and the scribes, they knew exactly where the Messiah was to be born, right? They, they, didn't, they didn't miss a beat. As a matter of fact, they quoted back to Herod, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. They said, well, that's easy. Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. What's interesting is, whether in Luke 2 or Matthew 2 or any of the narratives about Jesus' birth or early, early childhood, do you read about any, a single chief priest being there? No. Do you see any scribe being there? No. Do you see anybody from the Sanhedrin being there? Not a person. Later in John chapter 7, verse 42, Jesus confirms that everyone knew that the Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. But when this large caravan of magi, the intelligentsia of the age, the scholars, the stargazers appear seeking their Jewish Messiah, given all the astronomical events, given all the beliefs of the Roman people at that time, given the the messianic expectations of even the Jews, right? You see that in Acts chapter 5, verse 35 to 37. They're recording all these kind of upstart messiahs that they got squashed. Given all that, you would think at least one of them would go over to Bethlehem to check it out. But not a single one of them did at all. They didn't bother to raise their fingers. ESV Study Bible has this interesting note about it. All of Jerusalem being troubled is a reference by Matthew of Israel's corrupt religious and political leadership. The arrival of the true king presents a threat to them all. Maybe they were in cahoots with Herod's plan to kill the Messiah that they found. Either way, this makes perfect sense of our study of Mark's gospel. Do you remember in Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes up to the temple and basically denounces the temple. He curses the fig tree as a physical illustration of what's wrong with the temple. The fig tree was pretending to be something it wasn't. It was hypocrisy, and he cursed it just like he cursed the temple and the religious institution of Judaism. It was something that was, was pretending to be something it wasn't, and he cursed the hypocrisy of it. Apparently, it had been hypocrisy for a long time, from the day Jesus was born. The real king of the Jews had arrived. In fact, what these magi's arrival uh, to see Jesus indicate to us, he's not just king of the Jews. He's king of everybody. And the, 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 the brightest, the intelligentsia of the age, these mysterious, mystical magi recognize that he's even the king of all. You see, the magi, they're foreshadowing of the truth that all people one day will worship the one true God, just like the prophet said. In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 3, in Micah 4, 2, they quote each other verbatim with the exception of the one words I have in red. And many peoples, many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
The very last book of the Bible records the same kind of thing. John writes in Revelation 7, After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. And notice how he just piles on the, 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 the synonyms, the, uh, the similes here, or the synonyms. Every nation, all tribes, all peoples, and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Unlike Herod, this king that was being born would not rule by tyranny or cruelty, but by grace and truth. And as the historians recorded, the, the Roman historians recorded, this king would have an empire of no end, and it would be a universal rule. But here's the tragedy. Most people alive then, just like today, missed it and are still missing it. And we can't help but notice the reactions and the irony here in Matthew 2, that those who were often the closest to the means were the furthest from the goal. The Jews had the whole of the scriptures. They had the entirety of the Old Testament. It was their promises. It was their heritage. Yet, they were either indifferent to it, eh, whatever. When I say whatevs, right? They were either indifferent to what they had, or they were actually downright hostile in opposition to it. John chapter 1, verse 11. John says, that, speaking of Jesus, that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The danger that, that we are, are, are that, that Herod and the people of Jerusalem at that time, and he, we even encounter, Paul says in 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3 7, we can always be learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. That's really important, friends. Yesterday, my wife and I were talking to our kids about the importance of reflection and, and just meditating. Um, because our kids are like your kids, they're like our culture. They just, there's so many experiences in this world to have, right? It's like one thing after the next. I mean, there's always something amazing coming out, of the, like a Disney Plus or a new ride at Disneyland or a new trend or something. Oh, a trip they're going on, a vacation, an experience, 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 travel blogging and all this stuff. And it's, it's like exhausting. And so I wanted to stop and talk to them about, are you reflecting on your experience, because experience does not guarantee wisdom, right? I mean, experiences can just make you cynical. Experiences can just make you more of a consumer. Experience does not guarantee wisdom. So we said, do you stop and reflect on the experience you're having? Because that's how wisdom is gained. And I shared with them that the, the, the Hebrew word picture for wisdom was of a cow, some of you may know this, but basically regurgitating its cud and chewing on it, right? So have you ever seen the cows eating, they're like, that kind of thing, and they swallow, and if you watch them long enough, then they just start eating the same thing, and you're like, oh, you know, and they swallow, and they do it again, right? And they eat it, and they chew on it, and then they swallow it. That's, I mean, that's gross, but you'll never forget, right? That's the Hebrew word picture for wisdom. It is constantly chewing, digesting, bringing up, thinking through, chewing, digesting, bringing up. And I said, kids, I was talking to my kids, they're like, you know, look, generations before you, a couple of generations ago, they didn't have nearly half the experiences you're going to have. But they got twice the wisdom. Because they didn't just go from experience to experience to experience to experience, they thought about it. Well, what does this mean? 
What, what does this mean for the way I'm going to live? How do I process this? Do I connect the dots? Do I see the larger picture of reality that's taking place? Or am I just looking for the next experience? If we don't be the kinds of people that step back and reflect on the times that we live in and the faith that we espouse, we're not going to do the world any good. Right? It's just, that's just the reality. We can't be just like the world as people called out of the world. If you're a Christian, part of that calling becomes is the renewing of your mind so that your lives are different. Herod and the, the people of the, uh, Jerusalem at that time are long since gone. But one writer says, Herod still lives on in us if we don't do this. Herod is not dead, he writes. Herod lives on in us. The exaggerated ambitions, the pretentiousness, the greed for position, grudge against God, guile, and finally, human cruelty and insensitivity, which are all the fruit of our war with and against God. All these live still in us and must be contended with until the last judgment. Friends, here's the rub of Christmas. The true king is here, and we all have to reckon with that. The question is, we're seeing in Matthew 2, are we going to be just indifferent? Even though it's an embarrassment of riches that we have, are we just going to be like, meh, whatever. If it's true, whatever. I'm, not, I mean, whatever. I'm too busy with my travel blogs, or I'm too busy with whatever I'm doing. I'm not going to think about it. Or worse yet, will we be hostile and in opposition to the king like Herod was. By contrast, this magi, they had relative to the people of God, they had nothing to go on, but what they did is they reflected on, hey, what's going on in the world around us? What do we know from this ancient Jewish hishness of wisdom in the scripture? They were seeking wisdom. They were seeking to understand life. They wanted life to work well, but most importantly, they had the wisdom to recognize life when they saw him, and they worshiped him, according to Matthew 2. Now, I'm not saying that these, these, these magicians and sorcerers and wizards were like born-again Christians at this point. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that's what Matthew records. To the degree, what understanding they had that this was the God-man, and right, saying that we don't know. But I love the fact that whatever credit can be given to them, God gave them the credit. Whatever little light they had, they responded to in obedience, and God saw that. I love that. And we have no idea what happened to them. They, leave the, they exit stage left. We never know. But I love the fact that the little they had, they acted on it. And God rewarded them. You see the, the gifts. We don't have time to unpack it. But those three amazing gifts at the end of uh, you know, Matthew, uh, uh, verses 11 and uh, 12. The gold, right? They knew, they knew this was royalty. They knew this was royalty. They gave them frankincense. It's interesting. Frankincense was the only incense, the only incense in the Old Testament that you may put on the altar to Yahweh. So the gold represented, they knew who he was. This was a king, the frankincense. They knew what he was to do. He was a priest to, to reconcile God and man. And the myrrh, the myrrh was like a perfume that you would basically uh, embalm and pack uh, corpses so that the stench didn't get out there. And so they gave him myrrh. I mean, they use it for other than that, but that's what they use myrrh most commonly for. So they knew who he was. They knew what he was going to do, and they knew what it was going to cost him. And they worshiped him. And they gave him these gifts. Matthew's message to communicate here is this astounding reality that this, this Jewish Messiah is not just for the people of Israel. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the world, even the most unlikely if they can recognize wisdom when they see it.
Guys, go with me to, um, this is just off the cuff. Go with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. I thought of this as we were worshiping, and it makes a lot of sense. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Look, I'm not sure if these magi prayed out for understanding, but they certainly knew what they saw before them, and they worshiped. Our application is, are you praying? Maybe you're struggling understanding Christianity. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you're not, and you're thinking that there's some truth to this. Paul is saying, look, we can't understand these things. I'm not saying they're beyond understanding, as we talked about earlier, but ultimately faith in God is not just a matter of making sense of things, but do you accept his kingship? That's not a matter of argumentation. That's a matter of the allegiance of the heart. And according to 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person rejects it. And so, friends, are you praying, Lord, I, I need to see this thing because I will not discern correctly because I recognize in a lot of ways I don't want to discern correctly, Right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, um, verse 28, uh, excuse me, verse yeah, 28, 27, here we go. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to you wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is, as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is the reality, friends. There's a lot of historical data here, right? There's a lot of stuff we can talk about. But what Paul is saying through the inspiration of the Spirit is that if God does not change our hearts, it's all for naught. And as we see these magi who sought the Lord, they were seeking wisdom, and they found it. Even Herod, the king, was seeking Christ, but for completely vain and selfish reasons. The great thing about Christmas is that that's a proclamation that the king came, came seeking us, Right? It's not us going to him any longer. He came to us. And so much of what we read in these 12 short verses, uh, that wasn't part of what my sermon was. I brought to you obscure academic writings, right? Documents long forgotten, archaeological evidence, astro astronomical data. That was all happening in the background. The point of Matthew 2 is to show us this is the goal of all of that, is life. And these wise men knew it. The question is, will we? And on what basis and how? The Bible tells us our natural inclination is to disbelieve and fight against God. But yet these wise men, so little, just a little bit of faith, acting on that faith with obedience, God rewarded them by opening their eyes to see the purpose of life sitting right in front, standing right in front of them. Are my prayer, I hope it's your prayer as well, that we, like the wise man, will connect the dots. That we will act however little we might have. That we will act in obedience to that and God will respond. God will bless you. And some of that blessing will just be to open your eyes to see what the source of wisdom in life is. Let's pray to that end. Father, we come before you and, and, and thank you. It is likely that sometime we may meet these magi that they have begun to understand who this child was that they met, that they, they had an understanding from. 
Father, part of the joy of heaven will be recounting the stories of people with just little bits of faith acting upon that and their obedience being rewarded with knowledge of you. Father, several of us have just come back from a nation where they have no understanding of the gospel. They have no light relative to what we have. Help us here in, in, the, in the West that has been so influenced by Christianity, steward that influence well. Help us to be a church that lives radically for the things of, for the, for the gospel and for you, Lord. We don't want to be like the people of Jerusalem who are indifferent. We certainly don't want to be like Herod who are hostile. We want to be like these magi. We're, we're actually rebuked by these magi who had so little but responded so well. Father, help us to be a people that respond well, not in spite of, but because of the great riches you've given to us. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.